You can be seated. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at the Parks Church, and we're so glad that you are with us this morning. Um, it's been uh, a little while since I've had to lift this and slide it over, but uh, it got heavier, I think, in the, the absence. But we are, over the last few uh, weeks, if you have not been with us, um, our, uh, our elders have been uh, teaching, preaching, and through the Psalms. And, uh, and so um, I have not been uh, preaching uh, as regularly, and uh, just uh, what a marvel it is, uh, how uh, I just tell you the joy that it brings to me to serve alongside uh, the group of brothers who shepherd this church and lead our church so well. Um, and for those of you who may be curious uh, about that, perhaps you have visited over the last few weeks, and um, it's, it's typical for um, a church to sometimes have a, a senior pastor or something to that effect. And um, here at the Parks Church, just one of the things that we uh, believe um, and adhere to is that we, we serve under, we lead as a plurality of leaders and a plurality of shepherds and elders um, and the r real reason behind that is so that we could all be reminded that there is one chief shepherd, and his name is Jesus. There is one senior pastor. His name is Jesus. And so um, I am not him. We are all together under shepherds. Um, but I'm so blessed by the brothers um, that we have an opportunity to uh, serve alongside. And so we're going to continue today uh, in uh, Psalms, and we're going to um, look at Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 um, is probably the strongest, at least most well-known, of what is called the penitential psalms. Penitential psalms. Thank you. I said that right the second time. Um, penitential psalms. And that essentially you can hear the word uh, penitent or repentant in that. The, that word comes, they're all tied together. And so this is a psalm of repentance. It was written by David after he had killed Uriah so that he could take Bathsheba as his wife. Psalm 51 is a great sinner crying out to God for mercy. And in reality, 1 Kings tells us that this action by David was the only thing that God had against him. Psalm, uh, or excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5 says, Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he had commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of of Uriah the Hittite. This was the one thing that God had against David, and it was a grievous sin. And it's a, uh, but this psalm is David pouring out his heart, pleading with God, begging for him to have mercy. And so we will be reflecting and really pondering, I think, the idea in this call to repentance. But what is the, why is repentance the key to Christian walk? Why is it so um, important and vital to our life in Christ and our walk as Christians? Well, Jesus, when he began his ministry, the very first thing that he said from Mark chapter uh, 5, you may remember this, excuse me, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, you might remember this from our study of Mark, the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. 
Jesus, if you remember at the wedding feast in Cana, he told his mother that his time had not yet come to announce the arrival of the kingdom of God and what he had come there to do. But now he says, the time is at hand. Now is the time to announce that the kingdom of God, not here to overthrow Rome, by the way, not here to do any of the earthly things that the people thought the Messiah might do, but the kingdom of God is here. And in my arrival, I'm announcing to you that it has come. And the call to you, the very first thing that Jesus said was repent. Repent and then believe. As we get back to school in just a few days, I'm sorry, students and teachers, for reminding you of that pending doom, I suppose some of you might feel. For other of us, the pending joy of a regular schedule. Um, But I think about those early mornings um, during the school year when I have to wake my sons, and at some point, it is sure, although this won't happen every day, I'll just go ahead and tell you, they always correct me on my stories as if I paint them in really bad lights, so, but every now and again, at some point, they will say, I don't want to go to school, I just want to sleep. I might even say that myself, by the way, I don't want to wake up and do this whole thing, I just want to sleep. But my response will be to them, as it always is, this is happening. There there is no wavering in this. You are getting up, and you will go to school. School is happening, so get up and get ready. Jesus' announcement of the kingdom is telling us that this is happening. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, what should we do? Get up, repent, and believe in the gospel. He's saying that he has brought the kingdom of God to bear and that he's inviting us into that kingdom. And how do we enter the kingdom? How do we become believers? We repent first. Repent of our sins, believing the gospel, which says in spite of all of our sins, we can be welcomed into God's kingdom as co-heirs with Christ. All because of what he has done. And this is really, really good news, friends. This is not something to take lightly. But this is why repentance is so critical to the Christian life. It's the first thing we do. When God moves in our lives and calls us to faith, the very first thing we do is repent. And so the Christian life, it begins with repentance, and it should be a constant a constant um, process. And we should be constantly in repentance, being aware of our own sins and our unworthiness to receive God's love, and then follow that up. While, yes, we are unworthy, I am unworthy, but I believe that because of what Jesus has done, I still receive, I have received God's love. But we don't repent. If we were just to be honest, it's uh, not something that is a part of our every day as it should be. And why? Why? I answer the question why repentance is so key. Why don't we repent? It's because it's so counter to who we are. What's the hardest thing for a child to do? Say, I'm sorry. One of the earliest signs of our sinfulness is our struggle to admit that we are wrong. A three-year-old will be playing in this room over here, will go and grab a toy banana, smack his little friend upside the head, and it will take everything in that teacher's heart and mind to convince him to say that he was wrong. He grabs the toy, hits his friend with it, and still can't admit that he was wrong. And guess what? We don't grow up out of that. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Say you're sorry. Do it right now. But I don't want to. 
We don't want to say we're sorry. It begins so early, and it's something, so it shouldn't surprise us that that same three-year-old grows up to be a 30-year-old that talks about his friend behind his back to get a leg up on him and work, gets that promotion that his friend deserves, and then is unable to say, I'm sorry, to confess, to repent, to acknowledge his own sinfulness. And when we fail to repent, we fail to receive God's mercy. That's why repentance is so key and also so beautiful, because it's through repentance, as we acknowledge the sin in our heart, that we then get to lay that before God and receive grace and mercy. But we don't do that often, and so we don't receive the gifts from God, we don't receive that mercy, and then we wonder what he is up to in our lives. I'm sure that there's someone in this room this morning that is thinking to themselves, I don't really know what God is doing in my life. I don't sense his presence. I don't know why I'm even here. And I would just say to you, brother or sister, the step would be that I would encourage you to take, and we're going to walk through this, is to repent, receive God's mercy, and see how tender he is to you, how gracious he is. And see how that fosters that feeling of connection with God, feeling with understanding that He is at work in your life. Our lack of seeing God so often begins with our inability to trust in His ways, His ways being higher than our ways. And because we don't trust that, that if we repent, we don't, we don't really believe if we were to say, I'm sorry, that we will receive that grace and mercy. So like the three-year-old, we just refuse to, to, to do that. And then it's just this cycle of missing out on God's grace and mercy. But I'm going to just challenge you, if, if, if repentance is not a part of our lives, doesn't that mean to us, if we are essentially what we are saying when we aren't willing to confess our sins, is that our sins don't matter that much? They aren't that significant? And if we take that line of thinking even further down the road, if our sins don't matter that much, then why did God send his son to die for them? We don't need a savior. And if we don't need a savior, then we believe we can get through this life on our own. And then we decide, why do we even need God at all? So if you want to understand, if you're feeling distant from God today, if you want to understand perhaps why as we sang this morning and our worship team led us so well, it was a, perhaps a struggle in your heart to just worship Jesus. And I'm not saying that you have to worship in a certain type of way, but if your heart was not inclined to praise God for who he is and his kindness to us, then perhaps you aren't fully aware of your sinfulness, your unworthiness, and because of that you haven't received the mercy and grace. I sing to Jesus because I know who I am, and I know how unworthy I am. And yet, in my state of unworthiness, God showers me with his love and with his grace. We need to think rightly about ourselves. We need to see our sins for what they are and understand that we are in desperate need of Jesus. We also, however, though, as we see our sins and we see our desperate need for Jesus to realize and to trust that God loves us, loves you. There is no sin in your life that can outrun, outweigh, do anything to outdo God's mercy in your life displayed through Jesus Christ. You can't run fast enough. 
You can't run far enough. His mercy is more as we sing. But of course, pride destroys us. So it destroys so many things, and it destroys our call, our, our understanding of repentance. And so we need to humble ourselves. And repentance really, the reason we don't repent is because it requires humility. It requires us acknowledging our need for Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said this, no man's reason would survive a full sight of his own inner self. Sometimes we try to justify our sins. We do something, there's, uh, you know, something goes wrong in a relationship with a friend, with a coworker, with whatever, and we kind of think, well, this is really what happened, and we kind of try to justify things down. But if we are able to see ourselves as God sees us, see ourselves fully exposed, Spurgeon would say, we could not justify it. There would be no reason. And so we have Psalm 51. A little background on Psalm 51. One of the most interesting things about this psalm is that many of the great reformers, the men who died, were led to the stake for their faith in the early history of the church. They, were, they would be found quoting Psalm, 50, psalm 51 as they were being led to be burned for their faith. And you might wonder, why would such faithful men need to quote this psalm of repentance? They are clearly living out their faith well enough to be killed for it and being bold enough to not step down and say, no, I'll worship the king or something otherwise. They are being uh, you know, just bold in their faith. Why would they do this? It was because of their humility. They thought rightly of themselves. They knew that even in the boldness of their faith, even as they had lived out their calling in this life with faith, with endurance, with all the things that God would call, they were still sinful people in need of God's mercy. And so they also believed, though, that they would be saved solely upon God's mercy, not because of how well they had done things, not because they had lived the religious life well enough, no, they didn't put their confidence in those things, in the things of their flesh. Their confidence was in Christ alone. And so understanding their sin and their need, they would just quote this psalm, repenting of their sins and entrusting their souls to the Lord. And so they could be marched to their death, not fearful, but with strength. Teaching on this text, Pastor David Platt once said, your perspective on earthly embers changes when you've been saved from the internal inferno. When you know the mercy that you have received because of Jesus, these earthly trials and the willingness to confess our own part in them becomes much easier. So let's look at this model of repentance that David gave to us, and we're going to work our way through this um, a little more quickly than we sometimes do uh, verse by verse. I'm going to highlight um, some, uh, some of the text uh, in this passage. Lisa read for us verse 1 through 4. And in verses 1 through 2, we see David crying out for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. But what does he cry out to God on behalf of? Who does he appeal? How does he appeal to God? It's interesting that he appeals to God based upon God's own character. Have mercy on me, O God, according to what? According to your steadfast love and your abundant mercy. Paul, or excuse me, David cries out to God, appealing to who he is. That God is 
steadfast in his love, that he is abundant in mercy. And so as we repent, as we think about our sins and reflect on our own hearts, we turn to God and we acknowledge who he is. The reason that we can repent and we can be so confident to repent and know that he will receive us is because it's in God's character. It's who he is. God is not anti-love. God is not anti-mercy. No, he showers it, but he does it. And the reason that sometimes people try to say God could not be love, God could not be merciful, he could not do all of these things and then do this, is because we base those conditions upon the flesh and upon the things of man. But when we acknowledge our own sinfulness, our need for God, and we appeal to him on behalf of his own character and nature, we appeal to a God who is steadfast in love and is abundant in mercy. So turn to God. When you have to repent, and we all will, I am the chief among sinners, Paul would say, and I have echoed that sentiment in this church numbers of times. I am called to repent, and I first look to God. Continuing in verses 3 through 6, he says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And notice what he says in verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, we all know in the human relationships that we have that when we sin, there's usually, not always, but very often can be someone else involved that we have hurt by our sin. Our sin against God has led to some other breakdown, and there is a hurt there. But the thing that we need to realize is that God is who we've offended because what happens most often in our earthly relationships, we will be a little more quick to work on the human relationships, because we understand that they might go post it on social media if we don't do it quick enough. And so we're real quick to just run over there and try to smooth things over. We feel good when we post a picture and they hit like on it because then we think, all right, things are all right. They're, they're not too mad at me. They like my photo of my kid. We need to realize that we have sinned against God, God Almighty. One of the reasons that we're so often unrepentant is because we don't understand the wrath of God against sin. When we sin, yes, we hurt someone. We might be sad about that. We might grieve that for a few moments. And we try to smooth things over. But if we understood that when we sin, we didn't just hurt someone on an earthly level, but that we sinned against Almighty God and that He does not take sin lightly, we would be much more quick to come to God and confess repentance, realizing that God takes sin very seriously. Why else would God Almighty send His own Son to die the most gruesome death His creation had ever created if He did not take sin seriously? Why did Jesus, when he was in the garden, knowing that he was about to go to the cross to atone for the sins of the world, why did he sweat drops of blood? Why did they drip from his forehead? Because he understood that he was going to endure the full wrath of God against sin for all time on that cross. And if God doesn't take sin seriously then he's foolish for sending his son to the cross. And I can assure you of this, God is no fool. He takes it seriously, and so we must also. Notice, though, what I said. 
The full wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. You see, yes, he takes sin very seriously, but the good news is that he levied his wrath against sin on Christ. And so we should feel free to come to God and to confess and say, God, I am a sinner. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love that was proclaimed to me through my Savior, Jesus Christ, according to the mercy that I received when I did not endure the wrath that you rightly would levy against me. I didn't take all of those things because of who you are. And so, yes, we should take sin very seriously. We should confess and repent, but we should also realize that in God's mercy, He has judged sin fully in Jesus. Another thought as He continues, just a few verses down, it says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Don't get confused about that. He's not talking about his mother in a sense. He is talking about the long-term, essentially, the sin that exists in all of his life. First Kings did say that the, in terms of God's perspective, it was what David did against Uriah the Hittite that he held against him. But David, in his own heart, he knew the sinfulness of his heart that existed all the days of his life. From the beginning of his time until the end of his life, David was a sinner appealing to God for mercy. But if we go forward to the next section in verses 7 through 12, we see that we are to look to God in verses 1 and 2, that we're to confess our sins and understand the magnitude of our sins and just lay them before God, realizing who we are. But then in verse 7 through 12, we can have faith in the restoration that we will receive. This is the but God portion of this text. Ephesians says this, And you were dead in, your tres in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's when David says that I was brought forth in iniquity. I was all of those things. That's who we all were dead in our trespasses and sins, walking according to the prince of the air, following whatever this world might have to offer. And then in verse 4, though, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love for which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. He says in verse 7, back to the psalm, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. As he comes to God appealing to his mercy, because he appeals to God and he knows that God in his nature is abundant in mercy and steadfast in love, he knows that as he confesses his sins, he will receive that mercy. He will, he will receive it. Purge me and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. It's God who cleanses. He appeals to God. It can't be done on our own. You know why we're not what some people in the world, and I don't really like this phrase, but I'm going to use it here for an illustration. We're not religious people. We're Jesus people. Because it's not a matter of our adherence to some strict rules or regulations or guidelines created by man or any traditions of the sort. But we appeal to God in who he is. And it is God who cleanses us, not our ability to do things the right way. 
David, even in the ceremonial washing, I can tell you that in the Old Testament, and there were these baths that they would go down into, and they would step down into the baths, and there was a rhythm and a course that they would have to go through. The hyssop was used to wash the, to sprinkle them with water. They had a very ceremonial process of being cleansed and being declared righteous according to the Old Testament law. But here we have, we appeal to God, and we say we shall be clean. It's not about our doing anything ceremonially. It is what God does. We cannot do enough right things. If you've been running the race trying to say, here's all of my sins, let me balance them out with a few good deeds, even a few righteous things that look good to the world and to God, it'll never work. You can't ever add up. We repent and we appeal to the mercy of God and we trust that he is the one who will clean us. Next he says, let me hear in verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Here's what happens when we sin, brothers and sisters. Our good shepherd, he picks us up and he breaks our leg. But he doesn't just set us down and say, okay, I've broken your leg. I've convicted you of this sin. Now run along, little sheep, and you figure it out. No, he picks us up, breaks our leg, so that we are desperate for him. And our good shepherd places us upon his shoulders. And he walks with us until we are healed, until we are restored, so that we constantly hear his voice. We constantly hear his words of love and mercy. And when we are restored, when we have repented of our sins, and he has restored us, and he has restored joy and gladness, to our souls, then he sets us down and he says, run along and go tell of what I have done for you and live with peace and mercy. And as we grow closer to him, he gives us a new heart. His spirit dwells with us. It lives in us and we look more like him, which is why then David would say in verses 13 through 17, then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue, what will it do? It will sing aloud of your righteousness. We do not worship. We don't sing aloud of God. We don't sing aloud of his greatness. We don't sing aloud of his love and his mercy because we don't understand what he has done on our behalf. We have not come to him with hearts of repentance and seen him restore us and strengthen us. And because of that, we are fickle. Our hearts are not warmed by God. We do this routine just out of habit. Restoration always leads to worship. And if we would be more quick to repent, and to run to God and appeal to Him for mercy and love, we would receive it and we would overflow with worship. Notice what he says for you in verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. No, what you want, God, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart. That's the heart that we should have when we reflect 
on our sins, when we realize who we are. Yes, I am a great sinner, worshiping an even greater Savior who went to the cross and atoned for all of those sins, and so now I can freely repent and confess to Him. We're going to receive communion now. We're going to engage in an act of repentance. Jesus gave us the gift of communion to remember what he did on the cross, to remember his sacrifice on our behalf. And if he did sacrifice, if he went to the cross, he did it for a reason. It was to cleanse us. It was to wash us white as snow through the sprinkling, not of water, but through the sprinkling of his blood. And so I just ask that you would do this. A.W. Tozer, one of the great theologians of old, he gives seven questions to understand your own heart. And so Pastor Matt's going to begin to play. Here's what's going to happen. I'm just going to invite us into a time of prayer and reflection. And as the Lord leads you, once uh, you have taken some time to just pray and to confess your sins to God and to receive His mercy and grace, then we invite you to come to the table, either the front or at the back. If you have a gluten-free diet, the small bowl is right here to my right. That's the bowl you want to come up for. Um, Everybody else, you can kind of just find the shortest line, kind of like at Disney World, and um, come and receive the elements. But this time together... Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we should reflect, we should analyze our own hearts. And the reason that we're supposed to do that is to see, have we put our faith in Christ alone? Have we confessed our sins before God and put our trust in Him alone? And he says, if you have not done that, then don't come and receive the elements of communion. Don't receive this meal because you will bring judgment upon yourself. And why does he say that? Because this is an act of remembrance, saying, I know what Jesus has done on my behalf. So if you're here this morning and you have never put your trust, your faith in Christ alone, as we spend a few moments in prayer before receiving the elements, I would invite you, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand and put your trust in Jesus and come receive communion for the first time. But if you're still questioning and wondering and doubting, that's okay. I'm just going to invite you to just sit and reflect on these questions and just ask God. God, I need to hear from you. I need, to, I need you to speak because I don't really think this guy knows what he's talking about, and that's fine by me. Just reflect and see what God has to say. But here's the questions. What do you want most? What do you think about most? How do you use your money? What company do you keep? Who and what do you admire? What do you laugh at? And how do you spend your leisure time? Just reflect on those questions. Perhaps the Spirit of God would use those to just reveal some sins in your own heart. And I invite you, brothers and sisters, confess, repent, and then come to the table and receive God's grace and mercy. And once everybody has returned to their seats, we'll take communion together um, as a family. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Spirit of God, I pray now that you would come and you would speak to each and every soul in this room. Would you bring conviction where conviction is needed? 
Would you help us to confess our sins to you and to have the faith to trust that you will cleanse us of all our sins and you will restore us. I pray that we could rejoice today in your mercy and in your steadfast love. We humble our hearts before you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice on the cross where you said it is finished and once and for all declared all sins atoned for through what you did, laying down of your life. And then you took it up again so that we would not have to face sin or death any longer. We would not have to fear them. But we could live as adopted sons and daughters of the King. We thank you. We rejoice in that truth today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Come to the table. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, 
that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we thank you, and we remember, we praise you that you laid down your life. Your body was broken so that we might live. We rejoice in that truth. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your death, your shed blood that does wash us white as snow. And as we remember today, we proclaim for all the world to see, for every soul in this room, and for this to be echoed out in our lives as we go from this place, that you have died once and for all, and you have taken your life up again so that we might be freed from sin and death. We rejoice, and we remember. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Jesus. We do rejoice. And we do it all for you. Would you bless these people? Send them out to make much of your name. For your good, for our good and for your glory. Amen. Every knee will bow, every eye will see. Thanks for listening to the Parks Church of Melissa podcast. We meet at 1030 Sunday mornings at Melissa Middle School, and we look forward to seeing you there soon. The Parks Church, for the city, about a person.